0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Litovsky,
1: and I'm Arnold T. Blumberg.
0: And today we've picked a bit of an unconventional pairing of movies for your enjoyment.
1: You suggested a theme of virginity. You were what was it that started the thing? Was it Once Bitten or was it Cherry Falls? Which was it? Most... Was Cherry Falls okay. that started it? Okay.
0: By the way, those are the two movies, Cherry Falls. And Once oh yeah. Bitten.
1: <laughs> so we're doing two movies that are cherry falls <laughs> cherry falls which has an extraordinary reputation in the horror community largely because of the film it wound up not being mm-hmm. uh, which is why both of us and this is you know anybody's been listening to us long enough has known that we've often done this thing where one of us has seen a movie and the other never has so we get that experience in this case this was one that was fresh for both of us we'd never seen cherry falls before we both had read a lot about it and had gotten that vibe that this is one of those, oh, like like amazing horror gems that that also kind of misfired because it wasn't quite what it was, and we'll tell you all about that if you're not familiar. So we were looking forward to that, and you came up with the idea of pairing it with a classic Jim Carrey, early Jim Carrey, <laughs> 1985 film, Once Bitten. We which, use
0: the word classic very loosely
1: here. Eh, that's uh, Well, you know, it's... I watched it a million times back then. Well, all right then. And, uh, and so you thought, oh, well, this is good because they go together and they're both dealing with aspects of virginity. One's a slasher and one's a vampire movie.
0: Yeah, I felt like Cherry Falls is one of those movies I've been meaning to watch for a long time. I've read a lot of things about it, but kind of vaguely, like nothing that was spoilery for the plot for me, although I mean the plot is all over the place anyway, so it's I don't think it would have spoiled it even if I'd read it. It was one of those where it was hard to find and it exists on a Blu-ray. And so I put myself on a waiting list for it from a site I buy from a lot. And a couple weeks ago, it popped up as it's available. And I was like, oh, great. They're probably going to charge like a million dollars for it because it's harder to find. And they're like, nah, it's like 14 bucks. And I was like, all right, put it in the cart. So I thought I might as well get it and We'll see how it goes. What I have is the Blu-ray of it, which is the like a Shout Factory or a Scream Factory. I never know which is which. If they're
1: they're the same thing. I know I mean, they're the same
0: thing, but what I mean is I don't know. I think this is a Shout Factory. If it's horror,
1: they put it under the Scream Factory label. But I mean, that's like yeah. a, that's their imprint under the Shout Factory general. Stuff.
0: Gotcha. You so know. basically, it's the most recent.
1: We have a lot of Scream Factory Blu-rays. <laughs> we really they do. do great stuff. They really... But
0: yeah, it's the most recent print of it that exists.
1: Well, while I lay out the basics, then Cherry Falls. It's from two thousand. Good afternoon. This is Stan Michaels coming to you live from George Washington High School, the epicenter of what can only be described as the senseless slaughter of innocence here in Cherry Falls, Virginia last three days, four teenagers have been killed, a fifth viciously attacked. Certain local officials believe the killer, still at large, may be targeting teenage high school virgins. It was one of many movies that apparently came about in the wake of another film we hold close to our hearts here at Ghouls in the House, Scream. And after that success in 96, everybody in the studios was lining up to get more like postmodern slashers done. There were a lot of them. This was another wave in the same way that the '80s wave happened, uh, post Black Christmas and Halloween and Friday Thirteenth and all that. And Cherry Falls was meant to be one of these postmodern nod and a wink kind of slashers. It was directed by Jeffrey Wright, who is an Australian, and features Brittany Murphy, who is right in the middle of quite a run she was having there with Clueless, and this, and another favorite, Drop Dead Gorgeous, and all these other movies and jay moore is in it oh and one other thing i should mention is as usual in ghouls in the house we're going to be doing full spoilers right from the outset and jay moore is the killer so anyway uh jay moore and michael bean who everybody knows from alien and terminator and and all that stuff and
0: and not cherry falls
1: (laughs) and not cherry falls at all although he's fine in it but the thing is it's scream factory which normally would mean when you get it Cherry Falls is going to be this amazing restoration. So the ba- the short version of this is that apparently the original intent was to make this a real gory, uh, over the top slasher with a lot of intense stuff in it, in addition to sort of the uh, black comedy, com- you know, commentary. And there was and the basic premise hangs on a killer who is killing kids not because they're having sex, but because they are virgins. The obvious solution is, well, if everybody has sex, that takes them off the list. So what that means is you're setting up a movie where a big climactic scene, which is in this one, is going to be all the teens in town getting together for an orgy because, hey, we're going to save our lives by doing this. So there was going to be nudity. There was some questionable morality there not not the sex part i'm I'm fine with that but since you're dealing with teenage characters it's
0: it's complicated it's
1: complicated and also we know a bit more about the director and his fascination with some of this to the extent that it feels a little uncomfortable and then the gore but they suffered a lot from mpaa cuts and rejections uh they were going to be an X or an nc-17 i guess to the point where they had to chop it down ironically And then uh, lots of other things happened. It suffered, didn't get sold, and then eventually aired as a TV movie on the USA Network.
0: One of the other things worth noting is that when it was originally written, it was written as though it was almost a spoof of slasher movies. It was written to be very satirical and to be, in a sense, sort of tongue-in-cheek, lovingly making fun of the slasher genre and it sounds like in many rewrites and rewrites and rewrites mostly coming from the director that a lot of the satirical elements were pulled out to try to put more of a serious plot in but then you still have some of the scenes where it's sort of goofy and satirical so it doesn't it doesn't know what it wants to be.
1: And that really comes through in watching this heavily edited final product, which as I said was basically eventually shuffled onto the USA network as a TV movie. I think it I think it's still I'm not sure if it still does, but they said it, it certainly for a while held the record as the most expensive television movie ever. <laughs> um But the thing is, for years and years, just to get back to the Scream Factory part, anybody that knows them knows they usually put out the best version of anything. That you get and they really go the distance to try to find the best you know elements to put on their blu-ray releases and there was a lot of talk at the time of oh well now we'll get to see cherry falls the version it was supposed to be turns out they couldn't locate any of the footage there it seems like there's some conflicting signals about the degree to which any of that actually is out there some people say well look they never lose anything they just misplace it it's there but they couldn't find it and And My first comment is, it's a very schizophrenic film for the reasons you already pointed out. Mm -hmm. It was meant to be one thing, it was being turned into another by a director that didn't agree with a writer, and then on top of it, it's also not the full version of a feature production because it was a heavily edited, MPAA-savaged version, but also, for a movie that aired on the USA Network, and again, we came to this fresh, I I never had seen it before... Mm -mm. I was stunned at the degree of brutality and uncomfortable material in this that I felt really clashed with any attempt to have a comedic bent, which really doesn't have much of one ultimately at all. Not really. And and the idea that this aired on television, even a cable channel, it's just, I mean, for one thing, another major part of this is it hinges on a flashback that involves a rape and they really show it in a way that I would sometimes not even expect to see in a feature release. And this was on USA.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I and... mean, it was
0: at a time, I think, when USA in particular was trying to be as edgy as they could be.
1: You know, I remember, I forget when it actually wound up airing. Uh, I guess, well, will so said 2000, I guess that's when it aired. It's interesting because I remember that in 2004... So four years after that was when USA did that thing where they ran the first 15 minutes unedited of Dawn of the Dead when that was coming out. Mm-hmm. And they showed that whole thing they right up to the car. They were trying to create, yeah.
0: I think, a little niche for themselves yeah. of that. But that being said, it still doesn't change the fact that the movie is not good No. at all.
1: It, I considered it, after all of the buildup of the history of this movie and it being this like... Recent piece of horror history, like modern history of this misfire in the movie that could have been, I found it a huge disappointment for a number of reasons I'm sure we'll go through. Mm-hmm. It's not good.
0: It had like the same energy and sort of coherence as Cutting Class, which was another one we watched recently and we didn't talk about on the podcast we except to it. say it was just. It was terrible. It was terrible. And this was slightly more coherent than Cutting Class, but just barely. It's like no lessons were learned in the time between when that was made and when Cherry Falls was made. And it's also worth noting that the director has basically done nothing else. He's this is the only thing, I think I looked it up, it's the only thing he ever directed that wasn't something he himself wrote. As, like, writer-director of.
1: Since Cherry Falls, he has only written and directed an adaptation of Macbeth. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and
0: he's also trying to do a TV version of his, like, debut movie that he did. He
1: apparently did, Romper Stomper. Yeah. It was out in 2018.
0: But basically everything he's ever made has been about either brutality or exploring the burgeoning relationship between an adult and a child in a way that makes me very uncomfortable yeah and that comes through for sure in this as well i
1: found a lot of discomfort in and i've talked plenty of times on this in the previous show about for as much as i'm and we both are such huge horror fans and obviously love a lot of things that are gory or transgressive we all have our limits and i've talked plenty of times about when i'm uncomfortable about certain things, certain kind of deaths in some movies I find uncomfortable. I found a lot in this movie that was uncomfortable and very unpleasant, especially the sequence toward the end. And I, I already said full spoilers and I joked immediately, look, that was no uh, assault on any of you who might be interested in Cherry Falls and weren't ready when I said it's full spoilers to turn it off. Because let me tell you something, the moment Jay Moore appeared in the very first scene, his first five seconds on film, I turned to you and said, well, he's obviously the killer. Mm-hmm. It was so painfully obvious. This movie has as one of its threads, the standard slasher thing that we've recently talked about, about a number of other movies, which will have some connections to, which is that idea of, oh, who is it? It runs throughout. Who's doing all this? It is immediately obvious from the moment he shows up that he's got to be it. And there are like a multitude of reasons. Like, the fact that it's Jay Moore at a certain time in his career. And you know that like, if he's showing up in this, he's not showing up to just play the teacher. There's no point to that for him. Mm-hmm. He's obviously going to be somebody important. And then, you know, the fact that he's like the only friendly one well, who has a weird relationship with our main star, who's a student, Brittany Murphy. And we'll talk more about that too. It's It's creepy on many levels, but It's just painfully, painfully obvious. There's no revelation there. So when it finally does come up, you know, it's like, well, yeah, of course, we've been waiting an hour for you to just show us that it's him. And then the whole sequence where he holds her and her father hostage, I think, was one of the most uncomfortable things I've seen recently. It wasn't suspenseful. It wasn't just a horror movie. It was just very unpleasant.
0: I think it was made with the intention of making the viewer uncomfortable And not in a way that it all enhances the viewing experience. Like there are some things where you watch it and you feel slightly uncomfortable, but then it's something that is sort of challenging in a good way. I mean, there are some things where it's like a gut punch or it's heart-wrenching when you're watching something and it's that kind of uncomfortable, but it furthers the story in a meaningful way or it, it... touches on thematic elements or something like that. This was just a fetish fest. Like it was fetishizing violence. It was fetishizing virginity. It was fetishizing like the relationships between parents and children. It was fetishizing the idea of The perfect town and the perfect sort of ideal location that has to be protected at all costs. It was all these things, but not in any way that felt thematically relevant or like thematically like it had some oomph to it. Instead, it was just a wet dream.
1: Well, let's get to one of the words that we used most when we were watching it, Mm -hmm. which is weird. This whole movie is weird. In a way that's not positive. It's <laughs> and it's, you know
0: us. We like weird. We
1: like weird. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am
0: weird. You are weird. Yes, You're
1: weird. Thank God. <laughs> but this is bad weird. This is bad weird. And like after starting off with like the traditional two kids in a car opening. Which has the, uh, like the the kid's car had the uh, vanity plate, Nova. Nova.
0: Yeah, he's trying to romance his date by telling her that he's like an alien creature from the planet Dunabulax. And like he's supposed to be, I guess, the sci fi nerd sort of character, kind of. Except that they're already dating. It's not like he picked her up at a party. And. It's just one of those situations where it just feels already uncomfortable at the start because they like drove into the woods to park and I guess make out, except he's driving the car. He's in control of where they park. She doesn't seem interested at all in taking things any further than maybe some heavy petting. And he's trying to sort of force the issue there. But not
1: only that, it's like not only is like the tip, it's not the typical kind of like two teens lead off the movie because they're trying to make out and the guy's trying to score he's weaving this incredibly complex again fetish is a big part of this movie Mm -hmm. he's weaving this incredibly complex weird fantasy thing that she needs to participate in it's just like why are we here why are we watching this it's insane and then it's immediately followed by the the first big attack which also you know betrays how badly the movie is assembled because it does the thing where Some of it's in weird slow motion. There's editing. You know, know this is all being done to compensate for missing footage. That Like it's all... Where they
0: took something that was gory out. Yeah.
1: And like slowed it down and moved it around and tried to make it artsy, but it's not. And then we're introduced to the main family. And I don't know what was going on with... Oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I want to touch on is that we see quite a fair amount of the killer in that first scene. It's like a lot of times the movies that are like, can you guess who the killer is? Is it this person? Is it that person? Is it's it Jay
1: Moore in a wig?
0: All you're seeing is feet moving in like generic work shoes, or you see a hand that's wearing a glove, you know, holding a weapon and just a shadow or, you know, something like that. And so a lot of movies sort of set up the it by only giving you pieces, except this time, The killer is shown, first of all, just kind of killing the guy and then leaving him be. But, like, torturing and brutalizing the girl from the car with intention. Which already, right off the bat, as a first beat, felt again like something fetishized in terms of violence against women. And then you're shown... Like a real slow loving like boot to hair shot that just sweeps up a leg that's in stockings and a mini skirt with like tools at the belt and fingernail polish and this long wig and like, you know, kissing the girl on the cheek and this and that. And it's just so overwrought and so clear That they want you to think, ooh, is the killer a woman? And you're looking at this killer and you're saying, no, the killer's not a woman. They put a man in women's clothing in a very awful way. Well, here
1: we are again, like we were talking about recently with like uh, Terror Train and Prom Night. Mm -hmm. Here we are again with a trope that we're seeing. It's pretty common then, too, of the transvestite killer.
0: But the difference is, in Prom Night and Terror Train it was almost incidental that they were dressed as a woman. It's like, we kind of went through that there, and I felt like it was not exploitative necessarily in there, because in Prom Night, he's dealing with his grief by sort of assuming the identity of his twin sister, and it's not really done in a way that's, I guess, sort of exploitative, or that he's fetishizing being a woman so much as he's trying to get revenge on behalf of his sister as his sister. And in Terror Train, it's all wrapped into this idea of magic and the magician's assistant and that, you know, nothing is what it seems. And it doesn't seem like it was something being done because he necessarily enjoyed dressing as a woman. It's just part of the plan. But this, throughout, very clearly... Tells the viewer that whoever your killer is, Jay Moore, enjoys this process, is dressing as a woman, is reveling in it. And when we get towards the end, you really see the transformation process and that it's being done with intent to like be a woman doing this
1: well it's also there is the element like prom night where he was assuming the identity of his sister in a little bit of a way or that's how we felt where in this one he's assuming the identity of his mother right who is the one who was raped by among others britney murphy's father michael bean the sheriff and the principal who's also like you don't need to tell me he's creepy we meet him the first moment he's creepy he's creepy every adult in this is creepy her mother is creepy played by 70s and early 80s icon candy clark who acts in the whole movie. And I don't know if it's just reality or the movie. She kind of acts as if she's stoned the whole time and not quite clear on what's going on, but maybe that's a choice. I don't know, but Michael Bean is fine, but we'll get to that in a minute. But I mean, the other thing about Jay Moore is there's also the one where he goes to the door and the idiot opens the door. Why would you open the door? And he's talking through the door. We're still not supposed to know who it is, but unlike say terror train, I'm convinced that that was just him doing the voice mm-hmm. because you can hear it's Jay Moore doing a voice. I mean, it's just, it's so inept and on top of it, unpleasant. And then, like I said, weird, everything about this movie is weird. So our main family, our final girl, our central figure is uh Brittany Murphy's character of Jody, whose father, she will find out who is one of the people who participated in the rape of this Person, Laura Lee Sherman and apparently like there was it like the early version of the story we're told he didn't he said he didn't that he was there but we find out that he did participate yeah
0: there's several versions of the story the very first one we hear once she starts piecing it all together is from her mother who basically tells her that yes some other boys did but everybody was drinking and it wasn't really clear whether or not she participated willingly or not, and her father was there, but he didn't participate, but he felt part of it, Which is the way
1: she's evidently been able to handle it over the years, is believing he didn't actually do anything.
0: That and drinking, apparently. Yeah,
1: yeah. So ultimately we find out he did participate. It then also adds the one final wrinkle to this, which is, and we never actually get proof, and we can't in the context of what we find out, but Jay Moore certainly believes it, uh, his character of uh, of Leonard Marliston, Mr. Marliston, he believes he's Brittany Murphy's half brother, sibling, because he believes that Michael Bean is the father. There's no way he could possibly know this for certain with multiple people assaulting his mother, but he believes that he's potentially his son and her half brother. And I remember also there was a part, first of all, the first time he showed up, remember I said, you know, oh, okay, so Jay Moore's the killer then. Mm-hmm. And there was also like the part they started investigating the Laura Lee Sherman part and she's starting to piece together the fact that her father has this dark past that involves this mystery person who left town, Laura Lee Sherman. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. So Jay Moore is her son and he's dressing as his mother to kill people for revenge. And it's like, yeah. And granted on a certain level, you could argue you've seen enough of these movies you're going to get these things easier it's not Mm going to be much but this movie does not give you anything to work on it's simple and and simple to the extent of being detrimental to the experience of the film because there's nothing mysterious about it and then on top of all of that as we said weird when we meet jody's family as i said we got michael bean as the sheriff and her father candy clark as her mother her relationship with her mother seems odd all the time but her relationship with her father is disturbing and there's this one scene where he's like doing what he's evidently probably been doing a long time but it's also one of my pet peeves by the way i'll try to go through all this where he's like teaching her defensive moves Mm -hmm. but she's what like at this point kind of like a senior in high school now So one of my pet peeves in movies is when they decide they need to show you something about the relationship between people or somebody learning something or being told something, except that based on the relationship of those characters, if they really were related in the way they're supposed to be, it surely would have been something that would have come up a lot sooner than the moment you're watching. So, for example, the stuff he's teaching her There's no way he wouldn't have been teaching her this when she was younger years ago. Why is he just now teaching her this one thing? Like, oh, I'm going to teach you how to throw a guy. You never showed her how to throw a guy before? It's insane. And then on top of it, on top of it in quotation marks, when they finish that move, there's this weird deliberate choice to have an awkward pause where he's on top of her. Mm -hmm. And they stop for a moment and look at each other. And they're supposed to be father and daughter. And it is extremely disturbing.
0: I also have a note written from this point in the film, which is who wrestles their dad with no bra on? Which (laughs) she's not wearing a bra very clearly whilst she's practicing wrestling moves with her father in their living room, in which they've moved none of the furniture, by the way, (laughs) like people normally do if they're learning their self-defense. No furniture moved, so they're in a very tight space with each other where there's no maneuvering. And in addition to him uncomfortably lying on top of her for a while, she's doing all that. Like, surely he would have been like, self-defense class time, put on your sport clothes. Yeah. But no.
1: There no. would be a ritual to it because it would be something they would have been doing since she was a kid. There's no reality to it at all. And on top of no reality, it's it's twisted. Mm-hmm. in a way that never pays off in the film like the, it never goes there it never tries to establish something odd so in other words all we have is that moment and that moment just unsettles you because you're thinking what the hell does this even mean and then as if that isn't enough there's the scene later where she's in the bedroom with the guy and starts demanding foot related fetishy stuff that clearly just seems to me to be the director saying i've got Brittany murphy today let's have her say some things about feet And it goes on
0: way too long where she's like yelling at her boyfriend to bite her toe harder and harder and harder. And surely you think this scene will end. And instead she's (laughs) still yelling at him to bite her toe. At the point that she's yelling at him by the end of the scene, he would have bitten clear through her toe and she would have been down a toe, blood spurting everywhere, nothing sexy about it. And I just can't figure out what any of this even means except that the director is really into it and it was almost like he got to make his own personal fetish reel
1: and again just to make this clear this is not something that ever has any thematic resonance in the story ever again like you know you could say like what are you trying to do are you trying to show that your character has some kind of like interest in pain i mean that could be something you could play out in the story like maybe you get later and and there is in fact a thing where he's got her down and he he does a thing where he carves the word virgin into their inner thigh which also by the way was one of those moments it's it's like too close and real to do that and also feels too close to being a violating rape metaphor kind of thing in its own right which it is but that never plays into it the idea that pain is a part of this is not a beat in the story so it's just a weird moment for our girl who's supposed to be our lead and basically our hero in the film mm-hmm. and our central figure. Why is that there? It makes her, she's, throughout the entire movie, she seems distant and creepy and odd in a way I've never seen in other movies like this. And I wonder how much of that was the director, the writer, her. I don't know.
0: I don't know like I don't know was there an original draft of the script where it was her who was doing the killing in which case maybe it explains why she would be that aloof if she was working off a different script to start
1: every scene she's in her hair has a different haircut (laughs) I mean there's a lot of scenes where it looks like she's wearing a wig she might have been wearing a wig through the whole thing but probably but like in that very first scene we see her in her wig looks like Daryl Hannah's Pris from Blade Runner. It looks like it has been through a weed whacker. And then it like settles down a little bit and then it goes crazy again. And all I keep thinking was, did they like cause Scream Three came after this?
0: Yeah, it does. It's, it's like
1: they're like predating Scream Three's horrific Courtney Cox haircut. And it's like, what is going on with Britney Murphy's hair?
0: But while we're on that topic, let me just say I have a lot of notes written down, A, that just keep saying over and over again how weird she is. Like Every so often in my notes, I'll be like, "Jody really is very weird just through everything. But also this movie has like no attention at all to costuming or like making anything look vibrant or dynamic or even like brooding or whatever. I think what did I write? I 2000 has a lot of fashion crimes to answer for and that it looked like a gap ad and it's like every single outfit in the entire film is just some kind of shade of brown or gray or like a muted maroon
1: the rooms are like that too like the, the rooms, sets are like that the
0: sets the lighting the costumes everything just looks like it came out of the front window at Abercrombie and Fitch
1: oh by the way about her being weird and the and the mm-hmm. horrific vibe with her father remember there's also that scene where he's like quizzing her about if she's had sex yet, because at this point, as the sheriff, he knows that the killer now seems to be targeting virgins. And I mean, there but all, the
0: town doesn't know. The yet. town
1: doesn't know yet. And he's he's asking her. And when she says no, they haven't actually done anything yet. Her response to her father is, "Are you disappointed that I'm still a virgin?" And it's like, who would say that?
0: I have a huh written in all <laughs> caps underneath of that in my notes because what? It's like the dynamic that they have is that he is strict and overprotective. It's very tropey of the sheriff's daughter character. Yeah, and we've seen
1: this in so many of these movies. Many, many movies. Lots of sheriff's daughters.
0: And, you know, she has to get in the house before a certain time for curfew. She is fighting. Like the very first time we see her, she's in the car fighting with her boyfriend because he wants to have sex. She doesn't. And he says, well, I guess that means we're breaking up. At which point her mom shows up at the car window to like flirt with her daughter's boyfriend and ask him for a cigarette and then give her daughter advice about how to sneak into the house. At which point she kisses her mother full on the lips and then sneaks into the house and her father still catches her sneaking in and yells at her about being out late. In particular, it seems weird because mom is standing on the porch smoking a cigarette. So even if you are someone who is demonstrative with your parent in a way where you're going to kiss on the mouth, I feel like you still wouldn't want to do that if that mouth was like full of Marlboro. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's just me, but like, I don't even want a cheek kiss from somebody who is literally currently actively smoking a cigarette.
1: Here's some other just random notes I've made about how weird every damn thing in this movie is. (laughs) to no benefit to the film or the story. She goes to deliver the paper to Jay Moore's character at night, the same night that they're holding the the meeting with all the parents where her father is going to reveal to everyone and basically try to tell everyone it might be a good idea to encourage your kids to have sex because this might take them off the death list. That night, she happens to also already be in the school because she's meeting her teacher to deliver a paper, and he's there. At night in his classroom. And let me tell you something, I've spent 20 plus years, granted as a college professor, not as a high school teacher, but it's like teachers don't sit in their classroom at night when everyone else is gone. Right. Grading papers.
0: I actually kept saying to you while that scene was going on, like, is this supposed to be a dream?
1: We thought it might be a we dream We thought sequence. maybe
0: she was going to like wake up at home in bed and we realize she's like fantasizing about her teacher because... It was just so Lolita that it hurt. I have so many
1: WTFs written in my notes.
0: (laughs) But then like finally they leave the classroom because they like hear a noise and go chase it down and like ultimately find nothing. And then one of her friends shows up who's like the very stereotypical gay best friend. And you realize, no, that was real because they're about to have a school meeting, parents only, no students allowed. And if her dad is that overprotective, how did he not realize his daughter was there at night to flirt with her teacher and hand in a paper? Just somehow on the off chance he was the one teacher still sitting in his classroom with all the lights on at eight o'clock? Like, I don't know what their intent was in sorting that out, but it just made no sense at all.
1: Well, we also know that as a sheriff, Bean is a terrible sheriff because he also does that thing where he searches through the Sherman house, finds evidence of Moore as a baby who'd evidently been abused by his mother following her experience. Mm-hmm. But then we see that Moore's is actually there watching him, Michael Myers style, except that this is the dumbest sheriff on earth because he didn't find the suspect who's clearly there on the premises. And it's like, that that's pretty damn inept.
0: Yeah, I mean, to I miss guess because he's personally involved, maybe he's otherwise occupied in his brain, thinking about the fact that uh, he was involved in a rape when he was in high school. And maybe that's distracting for him. I don't know.
1: Other weird moments um, in the middle of the truly horrific... I mean, if you want to say is Cherry Falls an effective horror movie... I will give it credit for one thing. The foot scene alone is effective horror in the sense that we were horrified by it. <laughs> yeah, very. And still are. During that scene, there's that part where where the boyfriend tries, they try to give him like some pithy moment. He says something about when you find out your parents are bigger hypocrites than your friends are. And I wrote down, what the fuck does that mean? It does meaningless. And it's just so damn weird. Even the part toward the end where he captures her and the father... We couldn't really figure out if he wanted to kill her or have sex with her, his half-sister.
0: Yeah, it's hard to say. All while very clearly stating he thinks that they're related. And it's a very bizarro situation. It doesn't... I guess ultimately, you can't quite figure out what his end game is in all of this like he has the whole villains monologue thing where they're like what are you doing and he's like let me tell you all of it while he's like adjusting his mascara and you know putting on his lipstick and
1: he gets the one good tagline in the movie though where he shows up for the teen orgy
0: it's mr marlinson he's the killer come on Yeah, there's it's, another good line too where right before the sheriff is about to like lay it all out there for the parents of the town he tells the principal first and the principal says we're gonna have a goddamn fuck fest on our hands to which the sheriff says better than a pile of dead teenagers and it's like you know he's right
1: well here's the thing like, right. he is
0: right in that
1: being savage about most of this movie let's point out a couple things we thought were good it's like the premise is a very good premise for a slasher movie. They just didn't wind up making one that was any good. Yes. But the idea of flipping the script and saying, what if everybody has to have sex in order to avoid being killed? That's great. There's a lot of potential there. None of it is explored in the film. But There are like inklings of things. Like there's like brief glimmers of stuff that I feel also probably just suffered from the horrible mush that this movie became in the editing and everything else. There's that weird thing where we're shown that he has like a reloadable knife. And Mm. another thing that often comes up in these movies is trying to come up with a cool gimmicky weapon that hopefully you could claim, you know, as part of your iconic character should it suddenly catch on. And I feel like they were trying to come up with something like, what'll be our thing? So like when Cherry Falls continues into four movies he'll have the thing and it was this reloadable knife and um except that of course you know doesn't matter at all there's there's bits toward the end where the boyfriend actually punches him out and locks him out of the house to try to gain time to save the two of them her and her father who mm-hmm. suffers a truly uncomfortable horrific death when you think he's going to be saved which is just a beat that I also hated
0: which is also mostly off camera because they couldn't show the gore
1: yeah and uh, i mean granted the thing is though it's like come up and because ultimately his car- he's a rapist and he's been hiding it his entire life and and being a law enforcement you know law officer at the same time um but it's just it's well weird i keep saying weird
0: i mean weird <clears throat> is the word that pops up the most in my notes
1: oh one other thing credit at least for the fact that after we've seen many movies where they don't do this they actually do exactly deliver on the setup of the very move she learns from her father at the beginning of the movie which as i said would never have come up now Mm. she uses against jay moore at the end of the film and leaves him impaled and then they also have a deputy gun him down with two guns just to take care of him further
0: i do like the deputy a lot And I feel like she's one of the only interesting characters and she's barely in the movie, like the sheriff's deputy, her father's assistant, because she definitely takes charge of the situation. She's the one who basically sets up the perimeter at the teen orgy sex party and tells like all the other officers, like, unless there's trouble, like, leave them be and like, let them do their thing. We're just here to protect the perimeter and make sure That, like, a bad person doesn't come in. Um, And I think that she is an interesting character that in some ways is sort of reflected in the Deputy Hicks character in Scream 4. That sort of idea of somebody who's, like, devoted to the sheriff but also capable but also a little weird and you're just not sure what her involvement in all of it is and ultimately it's that she's the only one in the town who actually has her head screwed on right and can actually handle the situation
1: interestingly she's paul anka's daughter too it's amanda anka Hmm. she also has a scene that you pointed out was like also one of the few moments in the movie that like had some weight to it where there's going to be the orgy the deputies are all gathering. One of them actually wants to like participate or something, or making some kind of crude yeah, joke. Yeah, weird, gross, comment. And suggests something about her too. And you said it shows how it's still that kind of town. It's like those toxic guys mm-hmm. in the past and the present. There's elements of what could have been an actual movie here, and and they never got there.
0: Yeah, they. I'm hesitant to even say that they tried. Like, I don't think that they even tried. I think that they decided they were just going to rely on these, like, over-the-top, extreme, brutal kills. And then those got cut and they said, well, crap, we forgot to write a movie around those. And there really wasn't much to go off of. I think one one of the elements that really bothered me the most throughout is the fact that the first girl who gets killed and presumably is getting killed because she's a virgin. First of all, how someone even knows that that's also up in the air of like, I'm sorry, how do you presume to know this? But two, the only reason she's a virgin is because she was resisting sexual assault from her date. The only reason Brittany Murphy's character is a virgin is because She was probably interested in sleeping with her boyfriend, except that he was trying to pressure her, at which point she was like, whoa, partner, no thank you. So they're
1: basically making the right decisions and suffering for it.
0: Yeah. It's not even like it just so happens that they're virgins. It's like they're making these conscious choices not to have sex for their own reasons, and it's not something that to me seemed out of sorts for any of the characters who were virgins to, to say either chosen not to have sex yet or the opportunity hadn't presented itself. I mean, they're like 16, 17 years old. Like the fact that a lot of films treat virginity as if it's something weird if you are still a virgin after the age of 16, it's like something that comes up in film over and over and over again. And it's like, I would argue there's nothing weird to me if you aren't, but there's also nothing weird to me if you are. It's just such a personal choice to have sex with someone. And it's such a different place that people are at in their lives at different ages and whether or not they feel comfortable or have the right partner or whatever. The fact that movies tend to treat you like you're some kind of freak or some kind of outcast or at the worst i think when it comes to reflecting on women and britney murphy's character gets this a little that you're some kind of like uptight prude and it's frustrating (laughs) like it's it's infinitely frustrating and it's something that keeps coming up throughout the movie
1: i want to throw out one one other good and one other terrible thing Is like one of the few times I think we both felt the movie was clicking and it came closest to feeling like scream. And I think this this these were two moments that rolled right into each other is there's the part where you're seeing like the camera panning past reporters who are starting to report on this. That felt very scream like like everybody on the scene Mm. in Woodsboro.
0: I want you to know that any George Washington High student attending this gathering will be disadvantaged by every penalty it is in my power to impose.
1: And it led into all the girls who had gathered for a meeting outside to start discussing how they're going to have sex with these guys and how to handle guys. And it was one of the few moments in the movie that felt relatively sharp, written about Mm. where the girls are gonna say okay here's the deal here's how guys are and she's laying it down for all of them and they're like this and that and then and it was a good scene
0: she's like the general sending them off to war (coughs) like she's pacing on the top of the bleachers and all the girls of the school are sort of laid out before her they're all genuinely interested in what she has to say and all comfortable with asking her questions because now they feel like whatever like my life's at stake here like let's just get all our answers
1: and you cut to the guys and they're all being assholes yeah and it all and that that part was good and again it's like the glimmer of a movie that could have been but then also as we've been talking about there's a lot of twisted morality in this that doesn't work for example one of the things that runs throughout this is that her father is a rapist there were what four of them Mm -hmm. and her mother is complicit in the sense that she's always really known and buried it because it was easier for her to live her life okay well now they know but when you get to the end of the movie after everything they've been through the fbi is there investigating and they're trying to get down to the bottom of it all and what's the connection to laura lee sherman and all that she and her mother both continue to lie and cover up her father's involvement and walk out feeling satisfied like oh we did it then that means is i think you said she's no better that this was the time to say my father like it would even be like there's the moment to end on said can you tell us anything about laura lee sherman and zoom in on her and says i have to tell you about my father or something and be like Mm -hmm. truth is what's supposed to happen there and she lies and it's entirely wrong.
0: And her mother treats her like she's about to take her out for an ice cream Sunday to celebrate. And all she's doing is perpetuating the culture of that town that just wants to go back to being it. And when her mother is giving her the story and she's asking her like, why, why wasn't anybody charged or what happened? Her mother is laying on, All those age old lies Well, she claims she was raped, but nobody was charged. They were from good families. They were stars on the football team. She had been drinking too. She was a loner. How can you believe what she says? And she absorbs all of that and in the end, just basically repeats it. Back out. It's like she's just going to be the same person her mother was in covering it all up and excusing it away and just trying to pretend that none of it ever happened.
1: And if you want to defend the movie by saying, well, maybe that's the point, maybe they're trying to make this, you know, dark commentary on it. Well, the point then is the movie does not present that in a way that suggests that is their intent. Mm -hmm. and you can tell i mean there's you know we do this all the time you can tell when a movie is trying to convey an idea you know because most of the time frankly this stuff is is not particularly subtle it's 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 laid out for you
0: especially when it's meant to be satirical
1: yeah and it's like no this is not a movie trying to comment in that way this is just a movie having a seriously twisted and terrible viewpoint in this situation and basically leaving you with a final girl that I I don't think you can respect or admire in any way whatsoever and you couldn't from the beginning of the movie she was strange from the beginning and she's corrupt at the end in a way that doesn't say anything it's just unpleasant and and then it ends on that weird shot where the falls go red and suddenly I thought what are we in Twin Peaks now we're getting these weird visuals is the white horse going to show up now
0: I wrote Nightmare on Cherry Falls Street at that point where it's like but is it a dream are you still in the dreamscape and it's like oh what are you doing
1: it's like very few times i'm actually longing for the guy with the razor (laughs) knife fingers to show up
0: the only other thing i would say really does like lay in how they took a premise that could have been interesting and really just screwed it up is that they never there's never like a feeling of like lightness to it at all like there's never this feeling of its tongue-in-cheek or that re- even like trying to be that self-referential scream type movie they don't ever seem to reference the idea that like slasher movies show you getting slashed for being transgressive in some way they don't touch on it at all it's just something where they're like i guess we have to have an orgy now and even the little beats where in talking to the coroner the sheriff is getting the whole speech from the coroner about what happened how they were murdered how they were brutalized and tortured how they had virgin carved on their inner thigh and how the girls he checked and their hymen was intact and so he can prove that they were virgins and you know i can't tell for the boys but you know you can guess and it's one of those of like it drives me (laughs) crazy that there's still built into that even in the year 2000 that they're going to use that throwaway line as a way of proving virginity like this biological thing that they're saying is just fact wherein like clearly anybody who understands biology and bodies and humans can know either way could be true like you could have sex and nothing happened to your hymen You can break the hymen doing a variety of things, like literally just like falling off a bike. I mean, there's just, it's just biology. But the fact that they wrap that up in the sexuality of it is something that drives me insane. And really for me, towards the beginning, really drove the point home that it wasn't going to be satirical at all. That there was nothing in there of like a feminine perspective. That it was all going to be this male-driven perspective. Really, just. In my opinion, the movie was just fetishizing sleeping with teenage virgins. And there's really no other point to it other than that.
1: All right, now let's have some fun. <laughs> Do you remember anything? No, not much. I had the weirdest dream. You know those little packets of fresh fruit juice? You know, with them made out of tin foil, where you stick the little straws in them to open them? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I dreamt that I was one of those.
0: <sighs>
1: so it's been many, many years since I saw Once Bitten, but like many of the movies from the 80s, I've seen it 400 times back in the day. And this was my first time seeing it in probably at least 10 years, probably more like 15 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess for you too, it's been a while.
0: Yeah, I am I was telling you, I'm not sure I've ever seen it not on television, like I've never okay. watched it. I'd never watched it on oh, the movie right. channel before because it would show up all the time around Halloween on like Comedy Central or stations like that, um, and it would be on TV a lot. And so I'd see it all the time there.
1: Gotcha. So I'd seen it always on cable. I, I say on cable again. This is one of those things where you say this is when I show my age because when I say on cable, what I mean is I saw it on an uncut cable movie channel. To me, when I say cable, that's what that means except that I understand cable can now mean anything, but I still have that in me. If yeah. That's what that means. So I saw it on like whatever HBO it was, or HBO or something, every single time. So I always saw it on cut. And uh, not that there's really much in it. I don't think so. And and so for those that don't know, Once Bitten is one of your standard 80s kind of teen comedies with with some nice differences. And one of the things I will say from the outset is, I think it holds up remarkably well. One of the things you find out that's very unpleasant, particularly if you're my age and you grew up with a lot of these movies, is that when you go back to them, you see how many of them almost have woven throughout them many uncomfortable and inappropriate jokes about homosexuality, transsexual or transvestism. Certainly a lot of gay panic jokes in a lot of these movies. This one has very little of that, but it's there. It is there, but it was surprisingly in small doses, Mm -hmm. some of that kind of stuff. Not nearly as bad as, I mean, if you want to talk like one of the the absolute kings of inappropriateness that we all now realize after the fact, things like Revenge of the Nerds. But this not so much. And it's kind of still, I thought, a very sweet movie. And Jim Carrey's just like starting out his career as the first film role, big film role. He just wants to get laid and he's got his girlfriend, Karen Copens, who wound up not doing much else. And they're trying to get together, but she's holding off. Here's, here's some of our thematic resonance. We've got this tropey thing of like the girlfriend wants to wait. He really wants it. His friends want it. That's all they want because they're high school guys. And then he meets the Countess, who's played by Lauren Hutton, who, wouldn't you know, it turns out to be a vampire who has some very specific detailed rules about how <laughs> she's maintaining her youth and beauty, despite the fact that all the others with her who are vampires that she has presumably created do not need to go through the same ritual in order to maintain their youth and beauty, which they appear to have without any of this effort. But for her, it requires feeding on a virgin male Was it three times before Halloween. Mm -hmm. Except, of course, it's 1985. And it's tough to find a kid, uh, a male teenager, who's not already having sex. Didn't we just talk about that, See that you Mm -hmm. would assume that? But, you know, but, but also, Mark's, Mark's a sweet guy. It
0: sounds like very specifically her rules are like post pubescent male because somebody makes a joke about like the Sierra Boys Choir being in town and she like shoots in this look like, you know, come on, like I'm not sick. Right. And it's like there's something about sexual potency that's part of the, I guess, formula to her youth. Um, so it has to be post pubescent male virgin
1: so her quest is to get mark and then as she's feeding on him he starts to transform into a vampire himself the metaphor of the guy going through changes and having to deal with that in front of his parents and his girlfriend and everyone else except it's change into a member of the undead and it's an 80s movie so there's a lot of incredibly loving montages set around los angeles There's a dance-off, which I had completely forgotten.
0: I hadn't. It's my favorite part of the
1: movie. It was one of my favorite parts (laughs) then, too, and I'd, I'd totally forgotten about it. And it also has one of the truly great uh, theme songs of any movie, and they know it because they play it constantly <laughs> throughout the film,
0: including like a full music video length playing of the entire song while they drive around downtown LA pointing at things
1: <laughs> out the windows of an ice cream truck. Ice cream trucks were also a big deal back then. How many characters had ice cream trucks in the 70s and 80s? I can already name. Doesn't Cheech and Chong go around in an ice cream truck in at least one or two of their movies? There's
0: also the boyfriend in um, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. That's awesome. I didn't remember that.
1: I think it's an ice cream truck, and if it's not, it's like a food truck of some sort. And of course, there's Reggie in the Phantasm movies. Ice cream (laughs) trucks are a big deal, and Mark has his ice cream truck. There is so much of this movie that even having not seen it in so long, because I saw it at the time I did, was that one of those experiences I've had often where as I'm watching it again for the first time in a long time, I'm remembering every sound of the music and the dialogue and the moment as it's happening. It was very ingrained. And I thought it's still, like I said, very pleasant. Cleavon Little, who is probably like one of his greatest claims to fame would be Blazing Saddles. And he's great in this as your pretty standard cliched gay sidekick character as her uh, her, chauffeur, chauffeur, butler assistant adjutant whatever mm-hmm. another one who looks perfectly preserved and doesn't need to feed on a male virgin three times before halloween but she does one so. of the nice
0: touches i think is um his character doing her makeup for her because vampires have no reflection so they have like the makeup mirror with all the bright lights but there's no glass in the middle and he's reaching through it to touch up her makeup for her which i think is just a really cute touch to it
1: they have a very warm relationship i love at the very end when it's all over already and and spoiler alert you know mark and his girlfriend robin they figure out the same thing the cherry falls kids figured out if you're looking for a virgin there's an easy way to cure that
0: you couldn't have you've been in there less than a minute
1: you could have but you didn't have time to enjoy it and so once they've saved Mark from the Countess, she gets old for a while. But I like the fact that the movie is so like sweet and pleasant that she's not truly a villain and we kind of feel bad for her. At least I think like we're supposed to kind of feel like, oh, it's okay. She'll be all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She'll go off for a while. And Cleavon Little leads her off and says, like, I'll take care of you. We'll find someone. And it's like, it's, everybody kind of gets a happy ending. Like, she's just temporarily beaten. She'll be fine. But
0: he he jokes that he's basically going to, like, take her out of L.A. You just have to go to, like, the Midwest or something. And and you'll find someone, um, even even in the state that she's in. And I just think it's... That would have been
1: twice bitten. I can't understand why they didn't do a sequel then. (laughs) The Countess moves to, like, Kansas or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: This is like a combination of Once Bitten and Footloose. There you
1: go. Oh, yes. And we mentioned there's the, uh, did we mention there's the Vanity Plate in Cherry Falls? The Yeah, we did. And she's got one too on her limo.
0: Which we didn't even remember. It says, what, Life Sucks? It
1: says Life Sucks. L-Y-F-S-U-X. Isn't that cute? Because she's a vampire, you see. So that's (laughs) that's what that means. In her, there's also several uh, Friday 13th, Uh, alumni in this we discovered including one of the twins from part four i don't know if it's the one that danced with crispin glover or the other one but she's in it as victorian there's a confederate guy who's got flags on his coffin i like they're all There's also like this like cute little extended family of vampires who Hiss a lot and are menacing, but not really. They're just kind of all...
0: They all hang out together. They've all customized the inside of their coffins. One was like an aviator from the turn of the century, and he's got like all these maps and things on the inside. And...
1: and his two buddies who want to have sex finally wind up getting one of their lines to work on two of the cute vampire girls. And you get you never see them again. You don't know what happens exactly, but you get the feeling that they're all going to be okay too, that it's fine. <laughs> It's like, but they're vampires. Oh, it's all right. right. No, they'll make out and it'll be fine.
0: And there's another blink and you'll miss it role, which is Megan Mullally.
1: Oh, that is weird. Yeah, For
0: half a second, like running a ticket table, going into the high school dance. She is
1: really barely recognizable in that scene. Because we yeah.
0: saw her on the cast list before we started watching and neither of us could remember her being in it. And then after she was on screen, I still didn't recognize it was her. And you had me rewind it. And then suddenly I was like, that's where Megan Mullally is. Mm -hmm.
1: By the way, I mentioned the Confederate guy as one of their guys. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me while watching the movie for a moment, I was thinking, that's interesting. Because if he's a Confederate soldier that became a vampire back then, and he's been part of the sort of family of the Countess living with her and they're all together but basically cleavon little's character sebastian is sort of the head of the household running everything wouldn't he be uncomfortable with a black man someone that represents everything and then as i'm thinking the thought i was thinking this is once bitten (laughs) (laughs) and you don't need to worry about any of that because in once bitten the confederate guy with the flag it doesn't matter he's not really a racist none of it matters because they're not going to care about that beat and i thought okay They don't Um, really
0: give any of them personalities.
1: No, not really. It's also
0: kind of sweet because like Klugevin Little kind of tucks them in in the morning where it's (laughs) like, okay, it's sort of sleepy time. Everybody get in your little coffins there.
1: Has everybody gotten yet? If they're not familiar with this, this is a very silly film because it is.
0: Yeah. And this is a movie that is lighthearted all the way through, still has some horror elements to it. Sure. And especially in the transformation Parts with Mark where he starts looking paler. He is someone who they establish at the very beginning. Likes his meat so well done that it's like been set on fire. And then suddenly he's asking for like a raw hamburger at the school cafeteria. Yeah. He
1: drinks a whole glass of blood that, sh- that his mother has drained out of the meat in the kitchen. Yeah.
0: His dad finds him napping inside like a chest yeah like his his foot uh, Foot locker locker, yeah yeah you know there's all these little touches that are nice but i think for me the best part is the fact that not only do the people around him think huh they look there's something weird going on his girlfriend robin actually sees that his reflection has disappeared in the mirror which means she's now in on it she's seen the proof He knows something weird is going on. He's having all these very, very weird, enjoyable to watch dreams with him and the Countess.
1: That scene, by the way, the one scene where he has the dream where she basically compels him to attack Robin. He looks fantastic in the classic Mm -hmm. Lugosi-esque vampire thing. You could argue that because of Carrie's sort of rubber man thing that he's always had... The faces he makes and that are like just to one side of getting toward more of his goofy look, but he never oversells it. I feel like when he was younger, he was controlled more mm-hmm. by the people he's working with. And it looks almost Hammeresque in that one sequence. It's like, that's a nice, clearly they, they like the genre they were working in. They're having fun with all the vampire stuff. Yes. But they're not like tearing it apart and making fun of that. It's that it, it's cute. It's a cute version of all of that.
0: I think that on the whole, most of it holds up to a more modern scrutiny. There's still a little bit of that gay panic.
1: The gay panic shower scene is uncomfortable. Yeah. But again, I think we talked about at the time that as those things go, I guess not that we should be giving any of these things a pass or an excuse, but like as we were watching our thing, it's interesting though, the nuance of it because they the, his two friends have to check to see if he's been bitten on the thigh that they're trying to they, they care about him they love him as a friend
0: and Robin's been doing <clears throat> her research and she figures out that he would have bite marks on his inner thigh
1: by the way, her research involved going to a bookstore and meeting a, a character actor who for no discernible reason is dressed in brown face and doing an Indian accent yeah, A Southeast which Asian accent is
0: the other point I would say is inexcusable That's the in part
1: it. that I find most unnecessary in the whole movie I don't mm-hmm. get it but then they have the scene and they're going to they're going to try to check him out in the shower and see if he's been bitten every and then like everybody when they accost him and try to find everybody else in the shower goes crazy. And like you find out that evidently they've always had an alert system in place ready to scream out so that if anyone suddenly is gay in the shower, they'll all. But what I liked about it was the aftermath where he's not like mad at them. He's like, well, why don't you just ask me? It's like, if you cared, why didn't you ask? And it's like, he's comfortable with it because he knows they're his friends. Mm-hmm. It's like the other people that weren't the characters we're with are the ones that were interpreting it as something horrible or to avoid. They're trying to do it, take care, and still stands as a joke that is in poor taste and not appropriate. But I was at least thinking at the time, there was a nuance to it that felt like it wasn't quite as hateful as i would expect other films mm. to be in it and and it was a minimum of that kind of thing and i
0: think if you were making it today you could very easily adjust that so that instead of it being that sort of unnecessary over the top gay panic situation you make it more slapstick of like them trying to see and ending up like bonking heads or something and like everyone's gone off to class and the two of them are just kind of like passed out on the shower floor and everyone's just like i don't know what it is with these guys i guess it's like there's a way to do it that's just more about physical comedy than panic
1: speaking of um jim carrey's physicality because i mentioned his Mm -hmm. make the face the way he looks in the one dream sequence one thing the movie does rely on though is even early in his stand-up career one of the things he became known for was his incredible ability to transform his whole body and of course doing like was the early stuff on a living color for instance Mm -hmm. really and there are moments in this movie that heavily rely on the fact that he is such an incredible physical actor that again like i said i feel that in many ways he became sort of his era's jerry lewis and that like A little can go a long way. You let that kind of person indulge themselves too far. It becomes too much. But if you control it, it can be useful. And in this part, where he's still basically trying to play a normal guy, there are moments where he plays on some of his abilities and it works. And certainly one of the biggest ones is the dance-off, which is an amazing sequence. It has the other great song in the movie, Hands Off, And they basically play out the fight between the two of them for him, two women fighting over the guy in this. And he's just all over the place, and it's an amazing thing to watch. And there was another sequence later where she's kind of like hypnotizing him to follow her, and he is completely physically transforming into every Warner Brothers cartoon character that I think, as you mentioned was like drifting toward like the smell of a pie (laughs) yeah he's he's
0: every cartoon whose feet has come off the ground and is being carried on the wafting scent of a pie in the window
1: (laughs) yes and it's amazing because he's doing it in the moment there's no CGI, no wires no wires no cgi (laughs) and yeah so his physicality is a big part of it another fun thing about this is for a person that didn't wind up having too extensive a career she wound up having a home life and being happy and moving on away from this. Um, who knows what else might've happened? I don't know. But Karen is also probably the MVP in the movie for having some of the best dialogue in the film.
0: She's got some of my favorite lines. And you were saying that ultimately test audiences loved her so much. They ended up putting her on the poster when she, she wasn't going to be on it. She
1: was not going to be on the poster. And it's like, that's insane. This is a triangle going on here. Mm -hmm. But apparently she was added later.
0: I can't believe you're willing to throw away our relationship on a one night stand with a chauffeur and a butler and a slut who eats buttons.
1: In some respects, she's kind of the hero of the movie.
0: In many respects, yeah. And I think one of the amazing speeches she gets to give is like, Halfway through when she finds out they went off to this club and he went home with this older woman and he can't remember what happened and maybe they slept together, maybe they didn't. And she gives him this really long talk where basically she tells him, you know, like the ridiculous thing here is that I want to sleep with you just as much as you want to sleep with me, like maybe even more, but it has to be my choice. And the fact that you keep pushing makes it less likely to happen. And it's just such this amazing speech of like just taking complete ownership of what she wants and her own body and the nature of their relationship and all of it. And she is really in control of her life and of what she wants. And I think that that's an amazing character. They should have had more of that type of character in Pretty much every 80s movie. Like, I think I, I wish she wasn't the anomaly of the high school girlfriend or even college girlfriend in an 80s movie. I wish there were more Robins.
1: Besides Robin having some of the best lines of dialogue, another one I really liked was the one late in the film where uh, they're running around in circles around the Countess's place, trying to get away long enough to figure out what they're going to do. And again, she's the one that takes control and says, This is what we're going to do mm-hmm. to save you. And, and save all of us. And there's the part where he just, the two guys, his two friends are like, we'll hold them off. And he just looks at them and goes, see you in school tomorrow. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and I love how this is life or death, but it's like, life's going to go on. It's going to be fine. Tomorrow mm-hmm. they'll be back in class. And uh, you also mentioned how, and we've talked about this and some other things, the unreality. Granted, that dance-off itself is a very heightened reality sequence. But the dance as a place, as an event, is pretty realistic compared to many other film versions. And one of the things you noted is you can really see a lot of people, it's a Halloween time party, Mm -hmm. that everybody's really wearing like costumes of known characters. We see a Darth Vader, we see a Ghostbuster. It looks like the real world would look at Halloween, not the weird thing that happens in movies where they can't use any licensed properties. And I don't know if it's just that they kind of got away with it or I mean it might have all
0: been like the same studio, maybe they just didn't ask. I mean in the same way in um Jason Lives, a lot of the campers in that movie are wearing licensed shirts. Is Is that when they have Disney shirts? Yeah, they've got Disney shirts. (laughs) And it's the kind of thing where I think they just kind of got away with it. Probably. And so this feels a little like that as well. But it also is one of those situations where, like I said, in prom night, it feels very much like an actual high school that has been dressed for a Halloween dance.
1: They have all the bastel decorations Yeah, up they've too. got tons yeah. of
0: bastel decorations in the hallways, the handmade banners. They're very clearly in a gym that has been decorated by the students for this party. And it just feels very real. And I like that about it
1: it was it's so nice to go back to it I, don't, I mean nothing i would have thought of necessarily in the recent past like oh let's put on Once Bitten. but it's been a long time but you know now we'll be able to say now that we own it you know
0: if for no other reason than the soundtrack alone
1: thanks for listening to ghouls in the house featuring natalie b Litovsky and arnold t blumberg you can find natalie on twitter at nb that's nb lit of sky and arnold at doctor of the dead that's me our movies this episode were Cherry Falls from 2000, eh, not really, and Once Bitten from 1985. It's so cute. Ghouls in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com.